Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, right after I got back from that trip to Philadelphia to see that Marie Laurentin exhibit, there were some headlines about a measles outbreak happening there. And then right at the same time, Also, warnings about a potential measles exposure for travelers who had passed through Dulles or Reagan airports in Washington, D.C. So measles was declared eliminated in the United States more than 20 years ago, meaning that there is no longer sustained transmission of the disease happening here. But outbreaks do obviously still happen They're usually related to travel to and from places where it's a lot more common, and those outbreaks can spread really quickly if they reach an area where a lot of people are unvaccinated. So, of course, I do not like that there are measles outbreaks happening anywhere. It's a highly contagious virus. It can put people in the hospital. An estimated 136,000 people died of it worldwide in 2023. And in the years just before vaccines for it became widely available, measles killed an estimated 2.6 million people around the world every year. Uh, But as a vaccinated person living in a highly vaccinated area, I am not at a lot of risk for measles myself. So these headlines for me... Uh, they sparked more curiosity than fear, and they also reminded me a little bit of the things that led me to write an episode on Scarlet Fever last year. People seem to really like the Scarlet Fever episode, so I thought I would take a look at the history of measles. Um, Heads up, we will have just a little bit of questionable slash unethical research stuff happening this episode, and a tiny bit about ways that we used to inoculate people that's potentially gross. Neither of these are very long discussions, but they are there. (laughs) In the U.S., there are two different diseases that are commonly called measles. 
One, caused by the measles morbillivirus, also called rubiola, is usually just called measles. The other is caused by the rubella virus, and it is sometimes called German measles. These diseases have some similar symptoms, and they're both targeted by the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine, which is used in much of the world. But measles and German measles are different illnesses caused by different viruses. This episode is primarily about the one caused by measles morbillivirus, although German measles will come up occasionally as we're talking this through. The virus that causes measles is highly contagious, Between 85 and 90% of people who are exposed to it and are not already immune will contract it. It's also something that can spread really easily before people realize they have it. Measles causes a characteristic rash, but it is also contagious for up to four days before that rash actually appears. And before that happens, people might just think they have something like a cold. In most cases, it takes about two weeks between exposure to measles and the development of that rash. And the virus can linger in the air and on surfaces for a couple of hours. This can make outbreaks really challenging to track since health officials have to try to piece together who a person had contact with about two weeks before or who may have moved through a space that person had even briefly been in. Yeah, that's why these warnings about uh, Dulles and Reagan airports were on specific days for like a six-ish hour window (laughs) when a person might have been exposed had they gone through there. Uh, If you are Hollies in my age or younger and you're from the United States or Europe, which is most of our listeners, you probably have not seen a case of the measles in person, even though it has become more common in these places over the last several years. And as is the case with a lot of illnesses, there is some variation in exactly what symptoms people experience. But most of the time, measles starts with a fever and cold-like symptoms like a runny nose and a cough, possibly accompanied by pink eye. Most people, but not all, then develop white spots in their mouth known as coplic spots These are named after American physician Henry Koplick, who first described them in 1896. Then that's followed by the rash, which usually starts on the face and the neck and then progresses to the rest of the body. On people with light skin, this rash is usually red and flat, although there may also be raised bumps. Uh, The rash can be harder to see on people who have darker skin. Sometimes it appears as a darker shade of that person's regular skin color. Usually... The person's fever spikes after the rash develops, and the rash usually peels as it goes away. There's no treatment for measles. It's just rest, supportive care, and treatment of specific symptoms if needed, like oatmeal baths if a person's rash is itchy, which it may or may not be. Obviously, this is not medical advice if you think you have measles. Please see a doctor. Most people recover from measles without any apparent issues, but there's increasing evidence that the virus causes immune system damage that can last for at least two years. This is described as immune amnesia, meaning the body kind of forgets how to fight pathogens that it previously knew how to handle. And between 5% and 15% of people who contract measles also develop some kind of more immediate complication. Some of these are relatively mild, like since measles can lower a person's resistance to other pathogens, ear infections and sinus infections are common. 
But others are more acutely serious, like pneumonia and inflammation of the internal organs, including the heart. One of the most serious complications of measles is encephalitis, or inflammation of the brain, which can develop weeks after a person seems to have recovered. This is fatal in 10 to 15% of people who develop it, and it can also cause long-term issues like seizures and cognitive disabilities. There is also a very rare fatal complication of the central nervous system called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which can develop 7 to 10 years after recovering from measles. Measles can also be particularly dangerous during pregnancy, and that includes carrying a risk of low birth weight, pregnancy loss, and stillbirth. German measles, or rubella, is also particularly dangerous during pregnancy, and congenital rubella syndrome is associated with heart problems, hearing loss, developmental delays, and other issues. Today, measles outbreaks in wealthy countries make a lot of headlines, but that isn't where measles is most common. There's a very effective vaccine for measles, one that's about 96% effective with two doses, with that immunity lasting for a person's whole life. So places that have a robust healthcare system with broad vaccine coverage aren't likely to see huge outbreaks of measles. And even if there are outbreaks in communities that have religious or cultural or philosophical objections to vaccines, health officials are more likely to be able to respond to them effectively. But places without that infrastructure, without the resources to coordinate widespread vaccination campaigns, and places that are experiencing some kind of civic unrest or, or war are a lot more likely to see large outbreaks of measles and also less likely to be able to respond to them effectively. People who are already malnourished or sick or aren't able to get enough food or water or rest while they're recovering are just more likely to develop measles complications. This means mortality rates from measles can really vary from country to country, with the countries that are facing the most poverty and unrest seeing the worst outcomes from measles. So globally, measles is still a leading cause of childhood death. So that is the basics of measles, and we're going to get into more about its history after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% .9 of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Measles morbillivirus is in the paramyxovirus family of viruses, and that also includes the viruses that cause parainfluenza, mumps, and RSV. RSV, I feel like, has been in the headlines so much over the last few years. That stands for respiratory syncytial virus. This family also includes a number of viruses that primarily affect animals, including the viruses that cause canine distemper and rinderpest. Two prevailing theories about the origin of measles have been that it evolved from canine distemper as people started domesticating dogs, or that it diverged from rinderpest as people started domesticating cattle. Measles morbillivirus is most closely related to rinderpest, and most of the recent research into this has focused on rinderpest. Rinderpest was declared eradicated in 2011, and we are going to have our episode on that as an upcoming Saturday Classic. A lot of this research into the question of exactly where measles came from and when has involved molecular clock analysis. That's basically looking at mutations over time to try to pinpoint when two organisms diverged from one another. Studies conducted in the 20-teens concluded that measles diverged from Renderpest quite recently. It's just the 11th or 12th century CE. But then research published in 2020 suggests that it was centuries earlier than that, possibly as early as the 6th century BCE. A lot of papers written in the 20-teens frame uh, the idea of, like, the 11th or 12th century divergence of measles as basically settled knowledge. But then that 2020 research called that timeline into question. This, of course, makes it tricky to pin down some of the early history of measles. There are a lot of illnesses that cause fever and a rash, and a lot of historical accounts just aren't specific enough to say for sure whether they're describing smallpox, scarlet fever, measles, or something else. 
Measles is one of the diseases that has been proposed as the cause of the Antonine Plague, also called the Plague of Galen, which took place between the years 165 to 180 CE. If measles didn't diverge from Rinderpest until the 11th century, it couldn't have been the cause. But if that divergence really took place around the 6th century BCE, it could have been. There are also clinical descriptions of measles that date back to before the 11th or 12th centuries. The most well-known is by Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi, known in some Western accounts as Razes. Al-Razi was a physician during the Islamic Golden Age. He lived from about 864 to 935 CE. Al-Razi wrote at least 200 medical and philosophical treatises, including his Kitab al-Hawi, or Comprehensive Book on Medicine. And one of these treatises was A Treatise on Smallpox and Measles. This was the first known medical text to clearly differentiate between these two diseases. Of course, this was also written during a time when medicine was focused on the idea of humors and keeping those humors in balance. So Al-Razi's thoughts on the causes of smallpox and measles don't align with today's evidence-based ideas of medicine. As translated into English in the 19th century, he wrote, quote, Every man from the time of his birth till he arrives at old age is continually tending to dryness. And for this reason, the blood of children and infants is much moister than the blood of young men and still more so than that of old men. Now the smallpox arises when the blood putrefies and ferments so that the superfluous vapors are thrown out of it, and it is changed from the blood of infants, which is like must, into the blood of young men, which is like wine perfectly ripened. And the smallpox itself may be compared to the fermentation and the hissing noise which take place in must at that time. So this offered an explanation for why it seemed like most people contracted smallpox before reaching adulthood, because under this, it arose from the process of transforming the blood from the blood of a child into the blood of an adult. He thought adults were only likely to contract smallpox if they were exposed to, quote, pestilential, putrid, and malignant constitutions of the air in which this disease is chiefly prevalent. He also claimed that, quote, bodies that are lean, bilious, hot, and dry are more disposed to the measles than to the smallpox. And, quote, when the summer is excessively hot and dry and the autumn is also hot and dry and the rains come very late, then the measles quickly seize those who are disposed to them. That is, those who are of a hot, lean, and bilious habit of body. In terms of symptoms, Salrazi wrote that, quote, inquietude, nausea, and anxiety are far more frequent in the measles. And he recommended treatments for measles that included barley water mixed with acid pomegranate juice, as well as expectorants to make it easier for people to cough up any chest congestion. But Al-Razi also understood that smallpox was a more serious disease than measles, and a lot of this volume is devoted to recommendations for the treatment of smallpox. Regardless of the questions around exactly when measles may have diverged from rinderpest, it was clearly widespread in Europe, northern Africa, and much of Asia by the medieval period, especially in places where cities were large enough to sustain ongoing epidemics. Measles was introduced into the Americas through colonization in the 15th and 16th centuries. Although smallpox gets a lot of the focus in terms of introduced diseases and their devastating impact on the continent's indigenous peoples, 
Other diseases, including measles, proved to be deadly as well. There were huge deadly measles outbreaks described in Cuba, Honduras, and Brazil in the 1520s and 30s. The first written record of an outbreak in North America was in Boston in 1657. A lot of medical writing in Europe and North America in the 17th and 18th centuries focused on both measles and smallpox, as Al-Razi had done back in the 9th century. Doctors and other researchers wrote about how to tell these two diseases apart and how to treat each of them. One example is Englishman Thomas Sydenham, who had a chapter on the measles in his 1693 complete works, which was followed by a chapter on smallpox. Sydenham's description of measles is thorough, describing it as generally attacking children with chills followed by fever, loss of appetite, runny eyes and nose, and then on the fourth day or the fifth, quote, there appear on the face and forehead small red spots, very like the bites of fleas. These increase in number and cluster together so as to mark the face with large red blotches. They are formed by small papules, so slightly elevated above the skin that their prominence can hardly be detected by the eye, but can just be felt by passing the fingers lightly along the skin. The spots take hold on the face first, from which they spread to the chest and belly, and afterwards to the legs and ankles. On these parts may be seen broad red macule on, but not above, the level of the skin. This is so much more detailed than so many ancient historical texts that are sort of like, the Great Plague passed through the town, bringing a rash and death. And it's like, okay, what rash though? (laughs) Uh, Sydenham goes on to describe the way that this rash developed over the days that followed and then made recommendations for treatment, including syrups of violet and maiden hair and a draft made of black cherry water and syrup of poppies for use at night. He also recommended bleeding for patients who developed diarrhea after the rest of the disease had resolved. In 1740, German physician Friedrich Hoffmann differentiated rubiola from rubella, or German measles. It's not entirely clear whether the German moniker came from the disease's description in German medical texts or if it's from the Latin Germanus, meaning similar. In 1757, Scottish physician Francis Holm tried to develop a vaccine for measles. He was inspired by the use of variolation to prevent smallpox, that is, intentionally exposing someone to smallpox in a more controlled way with the goal of giving them a milder case of the disease that would leave them immune to it later. In Holmes' words, quote, considering how destructive this disease is in some seasons, considering how many die even in the mildest epidemical constitution, considering how it hurts the lungs and eyes, I thought I should do no small service to mankind if I could render this disease more mild and safe in the same way as the Turks have taught us to mitigate the smallpox. Here's the potentially gross bit, so hit that skip ahead button if you're particularly squeamish. Smallpox produces sores, and variolation involved introducing matter from those sores into another person's skin. But a measles rash doesn't produce anything comparable that could be used in this way. So, home tried to use the blood of sick patients to expose other people. Obviously, there are other bloodborne diseases, so this is not a medically safe thing to do. And people were hesitant to try it at the time. 
In Holmes' words, quote, from the prejudices of mankind, I found it difficult to get the blood as I wanted it and much more difficult to find subjects for inoculation. Yeah, this was a reasonable concern. <laughs> it's like, fancy that. <laughs> uh, Holmes' experiments with measles inoculation, they were limited. There's maybe 15 total people he tried this on, and they weren't particularly successful. Those who did get sick with what seemed like it could have been measles generally had a mild case of it, but some of them later contracted measles from some other exposure. Others did not get sick from Holmes' attempt to expose them. But this experiment did lead Holmes to conclude that measles was definitely caused by some sort of contagion, one that could be carried in the blood in sufficient quantities to cause the disease in another person, not by something like miasmas or bad air, which was still a common idea at the time. As we said earlier, measles is incredibly contagious, and that can make it difficult to track the progression of an outbreak. But in the 19th century, an outbreak started in a remote location, and researchers were able to gain some insights by tracking how it moved. And we're going to talk more about that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. By the end of the 19th century, measles had been introduced to virtually the entire world, including Northwest North America in the early 19th century, Australia and New Zealand in the 1850s, and more distant Pacific Islands in the late 19th century. In places where measles was already endemic, there were typically major outbreaks every few years, so the disease usually affected children under the age of five because virtually everybody else still living had already gotten it in an earlier outbreak. Babies also had some protection in their first months of life due to antibodies that they got in utero. But in virgin soil epidemics, meaning that when the virus was introduced to places where nobody was immune, the disease affected virtually everybody at the same time, no matter their age. One such outbreak took place in the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic between Norway and Iceland in 1846. It wasn't technically a virgin soil epidemic since there had been an earlier outbreak in the islands in 1781. But the vast majority of the island's residents had not been born when that earlier epidemic took place. There were 7,864 people living in the Faroe Islands in 1846, and about 6,100 contracted measles in this epidemic. 170 people died for a mortality rate of about 2.8%. The government of Denmark sent physician and pathologist Peter Ludwig Painham to the islands to try to control the outbreak, and he personally treated about 1,000 of the 6,100 people who became ill, And he also studied how the disease spread through the islands. Unlike in a city where there are a lot of people living very close together, continually interacting with people from other neighborhoods through things like work and school and errands, the Faroe Islands were made up of small villages on a collection of islands that were largely isolated from one another. People did travel between the different villages and the different islands, or people from multiple villages might all come together for some reason, but this was not just like a continual daily occurrence. Paynham pinpointed how measles was introduced to the pharaohs in 1846, writing, quote, The first person on the pharaohs who took the measles was a cabinet maker, now living in Thorsham. He left Copenhagen on the 20th of March and reached Thorsham on the 28th, On the way, he had felt quite well, but was attacked by measles early in April on what day he did not know. Shortly before his departure, he had visited some measles patients in Copenhagen. About 14 days later, his two nearest associates were attacked. So Paynham acknowledged that these men's accounts weren't entirely accurate. Like one of them was saying, I don't remember what day this started. Uh, And they were also just trying to reconstruct where they had been two weeks previously. But their description of the basic timeline, quote, 
determined me to give attention in my travels about the islands to the length of the stage of incubation. Paynham was able to identify the index case in 52 villages in the Faroe Islands. That is the first person to develop measles. From there, he traced when and where they had been exposed to the disease and how long it had taken other people in their village to get sick. With these observations, he narrowed down the illness's incubation period to about 14 days on average. That was a far more precise estimate than had been in use before. He also found that there were 98 people in the islands over the age of 65 who had survived that earlier 1781 outbreak. None of those 98 people got measles in 1846. There were already doctors and others who thought that people were immune to measles after recovering from it, but there were also various reports of people getting it a second time. So Paynham thought that what he observed in the Faroe Islands outbreak offered clear evidence that there really was lifelong immunity to measles. So he thought that these other reports where people seem to have gotten measles more than once, the people involved may have actually contracted some other illness. Paynham reported one village in which people believed a midwife had carried measles. She herself had previously had it in Denmark, but she had spent several days taking care of measles patients, and everyone she came into contact with in the next village she visited developed measles 14 days later. That included the girl who laundered the clothes that the midwife had been wearing. Paynham's account included a list of communities that were spared from measles because they had kept a strict quarantine. About 1,500 residents of the islands avoided measles because their communities cut off all contact with the ones where measles was circulating. This outbreak happened just as European medicine was starting to move toward the germ theory of disease. And there was still debate about exactly what caused measles. Paynham's report on this outbreak concluded, quote, if among 6,000 cases, of which I myself observed and treated about 1,000, not one was found in which it would be justifiable on any grounds whatever to suppose a miasmatic origin of measles because it was absolutely clear that the disease was transmitted from man to man and from village to village by contagion, whether the latter was received by immediate contact with a patient or was conveyed to the infected person by clothes or the like, it is certainly reasonable at least to entertain a considerable degree of doubt as to the miasmatic nature of the disease. By the early 20th century, researchers had concluded that measles was caused not by just some contagion, but specifically a virus, and they were trying to learn about and isolate it. That finally happened in 1954 when John F. Enders and Thomas C. Peebles collected samples from patients during a measles outbreak in Boston. They isolated the virus from samples collected from an 11-year-old patient named David Edmonston. The next step was to try to weaken or attenuate this virus into a form that would confer immunity to measles without making the people who received it sick. Enders, Peebles, and their collaborators went through a process that involved human kidney cells, human amniotic cells, and chicken eggs. Researchers tested the vaccines on monkeys before moving on to human trials. And the first humans they tested the vaccine on were themselves. Uh, this is probably more of a safety check because presumably all of them at this point had already had measles when they were children. 
In October of 1958, the team tested their vaccine on 11 children, and all of them developed antibodies to measles, morbillivirus, but nine of them also developed a rash, and they did not want this vaccine to cause any kind of illness in people. So after working to further attenuate the virus, the team started larger trials in the 1960s. There are ethical questions around these larger trials. Some of them were carried out at institutions for disabled children. The Walter E. Fernald State School in Waltham, Massachusetts, and Willowbrook School in Staten Island, New York. Both of these institutions were also home to research that was obviously and inherently unethical. This included children at Fernald State School being fed oatmeal containing radioactive trackers in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and children at Willowbrook being intentionally given hepatitis in the 1950s and 60s to study the progression of the disease and efficacy of gamma globulin injections. Neither of these studies had the potential to benefit the children involved, and the full nature of the experiments was not explained to the parents who gave permission for their children to participate. So these early measles trials were conducted on an inherently very vulnerable population and a group that doctors often perceived as less than human at institutions that were also already involved in unethical research. That said, there were a couple of differences between those studies and the measles vaccine trials. Being immune to measles would benefit the children involved. Since they lived in close quarters with other children in facilities where disease outbreaks were common, they were at an even greater risk for measles than a lot of other kids would be. A severe measles outbreak had started at Willowbrook in the spring of 1960, and so the vaccine was given to children who were actively at risk from this ongoing outbreak. And Enders and the rest of his collaborators seem to have been ahead of their time around ideas of informed consent, explaining the vaccine to the parents, getting their permission, and administering the vaccine only when that permission was actually given. Other trials were carried out in Nigeria through the University of Ibadan. At that time, the university hospital was seeing more than 1,000 measles cases annually, with a mortality rate of about 3%. So measles was a particular threat there as well. One phase of these trials was on the children of the university's faculty and staff who were invited to participate. The trials in the U.S. and Nigeria demonstrated that this vaccine was highly effective at preventing measles, and it was licensed for use in the U.S. on March 21, 1963. A team led by Maurice Hillman developed a more attenuated version of the vaccine in 1968. This more attenuated strain became known as the Edmonston Enders strain, and it ultimately became the only measles vaccine distributed in the U.S., the development of a measles vaccine marked something of a shift in how vaccines were approached in most of the world. Prior to this, the focus had been on diseases that were extremely serious and deadly, including smallpox and polio. But especially in the U.S. and Europe, measles had come to be seen as a routine disease of childhood and not a deadly scourge that needed to be stopped. On top of that, people typically only got measles once in their lives, and many people had fears about the safety of the vaccine, as has been the case with every vaccine. So this made it harder for health officials to convince people to have their children vaccinated. 
But even with those challenges, measles cases dropped dramatically in the United States after the start of a coordinated vaccine campaign. In 1967, there were 450,000 cases of measles reported in the U.S. It was a reportable disease. Health officials were required to report all the cases. But in 1968, just a year later, there were only 22,000. But there were also some clear disparities in who had access to this vaccine. It was mostly being administered by doctors who were working in private practice, meaning that most of the people who were getting it were middle or upper class. So while the total number of measles cases dropped precipitously, cases became really clustered among the populations that were underserved by the medical community, including non-white communities and people living in poorer areas. It did not take long after the introduction of measles vaccines for nations to start looking at the idea of eliminating the virus entirely, especially as it became clear that the vaccine conferred long-term immunity. And initially, researchers thought it might be possible to eradicate measles if as little as 55% of the population was vaccinated. That turned out to be way too low a target. Measles is so contagious that roughly 90 to 95 percent of the population needs to be immune to keep it from spreading. But nations started efforts to eliminate the disease pretty quickly. In 1978, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control announced a plan to eliminate measles in the U.S. by 1982. That did not happen, but the number of measles cases in the U.S. did drop another 80 percent between 1980 and 1981. That was so ambitious of a goal to me. (laughs) (laughs) Especially considering, like, living through however many years of, like, COVID-19 pandemic response. The idea of, like, we're going to eliminate this in three years. I'm like, that's wild. Uh, In 1998, though, efforts to eradicate measles worldwide faced a huge setback when The Lancet published an article by Andrew Wakefield and various co-authors which claimed that the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine caused a form of colitis that then caused autism. This paper was not just wrong, it was fraudulent, and Wakefield had been funded by an attorney who was representing parents who were trying to sue vaccine manufacturers. The Lancet retracted this article in 2011 after in-depth reporting on the many, many problems with it, and Wakefield was ultimately struck from the medical register in the UK, Numerous follow-up studies since then have concluded that there's no link between the MMR vaccine and autism, and autism advocates have also noted that it's extremely offensive to suggest that it's better to risk a potentially fatal disease than to be autistic. Measles was declared eliminated in the United States in the year 2000, but there have been outbreaks since then when measles has been reintroduced from other places. One of the most high-profile outbreaks was connected to Disneyland in California. The first case of measles associated with this outbreak was reported to the California Department of Public Health on January 5, 2015. Four other measles cases were reported to the department on the same day, and two were reported in Utah. Everyone involved had been to Disneyland or a neighboring park between December 17 and 20, 2014. Most cases involved in this outbreak were in Southern California, but there were also cases in 16 other states, Canada, and Mexico. Under-vaccination was cited as a key factor in this outbreak. Of the unvaccinated patients in California, 12 were infants who were too young to be vaccinated, 
but almost 70% of the patients who got it and were eligible for the vaccine had not been vaccinated because of their personal beliefs. This outbreak contributed to the passage of a law in California that removed personal beliefs as a reason for people to be exempt from vaccine requirements to attend schools and daycares in California. On September 27, 2016, the Pan American Health Organization declared measles to be eliminated in the Americas. But this only lasted for a couple of years. Venezuela lost its measles-free status in 2018 and Brazil in 2019 in the wake of civil unrest and an anti-vaccine movement. I'm just sort of continually waiting for the U.S. also to lose its measles-free status because we just keep on having outbreaks and at some point they're going to they're going to call it stopped. <laughs> yeah. uh, according to a report from the Centers for Disease Control, as of 2022, there were 83 countries around the world that have achieved measles-free status, most of them in the Americas and Europe. But deaths from measles also increased 40% worldwide in 2022, with epidemics in 37 countries. That is up from 22 countries that experienced outbreak the year before. In January of 2024, the World Health Organization warned of a sharp uptick in measles cases in Europe, with 30,000 cases reported in 40 of the European region's World Health Organization member states, that is up the, from less than a thousand cases in 2022. The European Center for Disease Prevention and Control reported that in 2022, only 89.7% of people in Europe had had their second dose of vaccine. That is below the level needed to maintain he- herd immunity. Health officials in various parts of the world have cited the COVID-19 pandemic as a big reason for this increase in measles cases and epidemics, both because of people not having access to routine medical appointments in the first years of the pandemic and being fearful of going to those appointments once they were available and because of increasing vaccine hesitancy in connection to the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. There's also some conjecture about the impact that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, has had on the immune system, and whether it is similar to the immune amnesia that can follow measles infection. But there's a pretty clear connection between an overall drop in vaccination rates and increasing rates of measles. Yeah, we're still very early in understanding long-term effects of COVID-19 on the body but the, like, there's just obvious lines that can be drawn in decreasing numbers of people who are fully vaccinated for measles and increasing numbers of measles cases. It is absolutely a disease that is possible to eradicate around the world, but only... But you with, gotta participate. <laughs> yeah, only with everyone vaccinated. Uh, yeah. Oh, um, do you have contagious listener mail? I have I have listener mail. I would not I would not call it contagious. It is about healthcare though. Uh, this is from Judy, and uh, Judy's subject line made me laugh. It says, "You made me realize I'm old. Not a bad thing in relation to mammograms." Uh, and Judy wrote, "Dear Holly and Tracy, listening to the mammogram episode in your Friday comments, I was amused by your amazement of the changes in your lifetime." 
Then I started thinking and realizing that I am too. I'm in my 70s and remember when mammograms could not only squish your breasts, but cause burns from the x-rays if the tech wasn't careful. And the techs were usually males back then. Then you had to wait for days, sometimes weeks, to get results. The new digital machines with mostly lovely female techs is a joy. Some differences with pap exams. Actually, general medical interactions for women now. I now I'm thinking I should make lists of things I've seen changed, usually for the better in my lifetime. It could be scary fun. By the way, this includes color TVs, email, Walkman, CDs, and audiobooks, a great thing for gardening, and backup cameras in cars. All in all, things are better. I hope you can make a similar list for your lives. Maybe everyone who listens should do that and send it to you. And Mist in History could start a new segment, Changes in Our Lives, as you trace a technology or organization or person. This, of course, is in addition to all the other research that you do. <laughs> uh, I've attached photos for pet tax in the vein of history. I have attached a baby picture of JJ an abandoned neonate kitten I fostered. The second picture is JJ now, still in my house as I couldn't give him up as an 18-pound cat. Enjoy. Thanks for all the learning and joy and giving me a new way to look at the world, Judy. So thank you, Judy. This I love teeny, this idea, by kitty, the way. <laughs> what a tiny little kitty cat face. Reminds me, I mean, my, uh, my cats, uh, we brought home at a reasonable age to bring kitten's home. <laughs> right. Uh, but the this little kitten face really reminds me of their kitten faces, even though they were a bit bigger than this one. And then, of course, this uh, very large, I moved, I moved the picture to underneath my window that, that I, has Holly, <laughs> Holly's face on it. Uh, and then, of course, adult black cat reminds me of my adult black cats, especially because um, this one is on like a fluffy bed type thing, and we have a very similar bed that uh, sometimes kitty cats at my house like, sometimes not. Uh, so I love these cat pictures. I love all these stories. I do think pretty often having been born and starting to go to school at an age where there was no email, there was, like, prototype email, but, like, not not in the actual things that consumers had access to. We did, to, yeah, we right? were not using it. We were not, we were not in the worlds of universities or the military who were, like, working on early prototypes of what would become the World Wide Web. But, like, you know, having been a kindergartner when there was, nobody was emailing reports home, having not had a cell phone, as a child, carrying quarters to put in the payphone, being dropped off at the mall Ugh. to walk around there with a quarter to call my mom if I needed her. Um, anyway, I think about these things all the time. The world has changed so, so, so much in Holly's and my lifetimes and memory. Um, so, yeah. One of my favorite lists of this nature uh -huh. was not a list per se, but um, Brian's Aunt Beth, who I loved dearly, uh, died three weeks before her 100th birthday. Oh, goodness. And she was really sharp and wonderful right to the end. And I remember, and I just had a soft spot for her. We just, I adored that woman. And I remember one point when she was in her early 90s, us uh, sitting down and talking about 
everything that existed that was common. Mm -hmm. That when she was like, you know, I know I'm old. And that sometimes when I'm in the car, because she wasn't driving anymore, and and you or Brian are driving, I get very nervous about the speed. And she's like, I remember when there weren't cars. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she was pretty amazing and had an encyclopedic knowledge of the area she grew up in and of the world, and she was world-traveled. So she was a great one for that, and I wish I had written down that entire conversation or recorded it. Yeah. But we have lots of great pictures of her doing things that I'm like, Aunt Beth is the human encyclopedia from, like, the late 1800s to, you know, the, the um, I think, I forget what year she was born. I want to say it was... 1904 uh-huh. but they lived in a on a farm so they did not have a lot of modern stuff so it was a little um yeah she was amazing amazing um i it's in my house somewhere i'm pretty sure a video of my grandmother and one of her sisters talking about their childhood uh being raised at a in a rural parsonage during the great depression <laughs> uh reminds me of that a little bit um, so anyway, thank you again, Judy, for this email. Honestly, I love this whole idea of of thinking of ways that the world has changed during our lifetimes. And I know that um, uh, that's going to be vastly different recollections for different people with different experiences. Um, but thank you so much for sending that and sharing it with us. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And we're on social media as Missing History on Facebook and Instagram and the thing that used to be Twitter. You can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.